Young Jeremy Scott tried out for a part in the school play. His mother told me that he really had his heart set on being in the play, though she feared that he would not be chosen. On the day the parts were awarded, we carpooled together to pick up the kids. Jeremy was the first to the car. He was running, eyes gleaming with excitement. Guess what, Mom? They picked me. They picked me. Catching his breath, he continued. They picked me to clap and cheer. How do you deal with disappointment? Shattered dreams? Expectations that seem to explode midair? One author quipped, When women marry, they think their husbands will change. When men marry, they think their wives will not. People don't work that way. Marriage is built on those kinds of expectations. Don't work at all. I would like you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes as we open the scriptures this morning. Book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. In verse 11, we're going to find five things that Solomon identifies. These are five things that we, we expect will happen. And Solomon notes that they don't always work out the way we expect. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. I again saw under the sun... That the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, or wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. Dot, dot, dot. We expect that the best, the fastest, the most well-conditioned athletes, the swift, will win the race. Not necessarily. We expect that the battle uh, proven, the battle skilled, the battle savvy soldiers, the warriors, will stand victorious again. Not necessarily. We expect that the wise and the discerning, those bringing help and hope to other people, that they will be rewarded for their time and effort. They will be given bread. They will be given wealth. Not necessarily. We expect that men of ability, men of skill, men of knowledge will be noted, applauded. They will be shown favor. We might expect that, but that's not necessarily how life works. How do you handle disappointment? 
shattered expectations. How would God be pleased for us to handle those kinds of circumstances? The kind of circumstances that we all face from time to time. This morning we find ourselves in John chapter 12. We opened up this particular chapter last Lord's Day and we found Jesus uh, getting ready for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, sometimes called the Feast of Passover. It's a week-long feast, one of the four feasts that's required of Jewish males to attend in Jerusalem. And prior to the beginning of that feast, on the Sabbath day, Jesus was at his friend's home, the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, in Bethany. We find, found Jesus on that particular Sabbath day being served by Martha. Lazarus was around the table with Jesus and the other guests, listening to the Lord. But the focus of attention that we saw last week was on the middle child, Mary, who gave extravagantly to the Lord. She had a vial, a, a bottle, if you will, of, of pure nard, an exotic imported perfume that cost the rough equivalent of a year's wages for one bottle of this stuff. And she broke it open. And as we put all of the gospel writers' testimony together, Jesus experienced this perfume on his head as Mary poured it on him and then on his body and it dripped down onto his feet. And then she wiped the excess off with her hair. An extravagant, normal display of worship. And it's in this context that we find a number of people flocking, if you will, to Bethany in order to see Jesus and to hear from Jesus and also Lazarus, whom Jesus, chapter 11, had raised from the dead. We concluded our study last week in John 12 with verse 11. On account of him, that is Lazarus, Many of the Jews were going away and were believing on Jesus. It's here that we come to our text this morning, beginning in verse 12. And what we're going to find here is a description of what we as Christians now call the beginning of the celebration of Palm Sunday. On this particular day, there were a group of Jews who had sky-high expectations for Jesus. Though Jesus sought to bring them back to earth and clarify some of the things that they thought were going to take place, nevertheless, they persisted in, in pushing their agenda, their, their expectation, only days later to have those expectations explode. 
Read with me our text, John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these things were written of him and that he had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. I divided our text into three points. Point number one, these Jews were launched into orbit. Let me explain what uh, what what is going on here. There's a large crowd coming to the feast, this feast of Passover. And they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and so they took branches out and they started waving them, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there is a scriptural expectation here that is fueling this activity by the crowd. I invite you to turn with me to the Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 through 118. This group of psalms called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel in Hebrew simply means praise. So this is another way for us to to describe the praise psalms. These psalms were collectively sung at every major feast by the temple choir. This day that Jesus was entering Jerusalem, the day after the Sabbath, what we would call Sunday, the first day of this week-long celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that particular morning, the temple choir would have sung this collection of Hallel Psalms. In Psalm 18, Psalm 118, sorry. Um, Find... um, Let's see. Let's let's start with um, let's start with verse nineteen, Psalm one eighteen. Open to me the gates of righteousness; I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. 
Now think about the, the scene. The temple choir is singing this group of psalms. And at the same time, Jesus is coming into the city. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. Verse 21, I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in His sight. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech Thee. Now let me pause here. The Hebrew word I just read in English is the word Hosanna. It's a statement of prayer. Save, Lord, we beseech Thee. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd of Jews gathered for this feast were hearing these words sung by the temple choir. on top of their scriptural expectation was their historical expectation. Let me back up in Jewish history just a little bit. Not long ago did I describe to you the victory that the Jews had uh, over the Syrians and their leader, Antiochus Epiphanes. In the latter part of the second century B.C., Antiochus, who was, uh, though a Syrian, he, he wanted to make everything Greek. Could you blame him? He wanted the worship of the Jews to be Greek. He wanted them to speak Greek. He wanted everything in his realm to be marked by the Greek culture. He killed tens of thousands of Jews to accomplish his desire. Most famously, he set up the abomination that causes desolation. He sacrificed pigs on the altar dedicated to Yahweh. He erected a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, desecrating the temple. By means of guerrilla warfare, Mattathias and later his son Judas Maccabeus, called the Hammer, defeated the Syrians so that they could take over the temple. They rededicated the temple, cleansed the temple. And that is the historical setting for the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, 
it was Judas's brother, Simon Maccabeus, who actually drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem. And as a result, they gave him a ticker tape parade, if you will. And they adopted a practice that was common among the Romans. They cut off palm branches and began to wave them in front of him. It was a symbol of victory. And it became a national symbol for the Jews. A symbol of victory. So here is Jesus in this situation. The temple choir is singing the Hallel Psalms, speaking of one who has come in the name of the Lord. And these people heard about this incredible deed that Jesus did bringing life to a man who had been in the tomb for four days. It was a display, an obvious display of divine power and authority. Many of the Jews, now in Jerusalem, came from Galilee, where Jesus did the vast bulk of his signs and wonders. And these people testified of what Jesus had done up north. So here is this scriptural expectation that one would come in the name of the Lord, bringing them deliverance. And here is Jesus. The thinking in the crowd is, this has got to be the guy. Now, at this point, Jesus tries to bring the crowd back to earth and out of their orbit of expectation. You'll notice in our text, in verse 13, that these people had come to the conclusion that Jesus is the king of Israel. That's why they're waving the palm fronds. They're they're convinced that this Jesus and all that he has done, evidencing his divine power and authority, he has to have come from God to do these things. This one has to be the king of the Jews. Now, that's an accurate statement. It's not wrong. But they didn't have a complete understanding of what that meant for Jesus to be the king of the Jews. Verse 14. So Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. We need a little more context here. So let's, let's, uh, let's go back into the book of Luke, chapter 19. 
The synoptic authors help us see the fullness of of, uh, what's transpiring here on this particular Sunday morning as Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. This is Luke's testimony. Chapter 19, verse 20. Jesus, as he leaves Bethany, the home of Martha, Mary, Lazarus, As Jesus leaves Bethany, he is walking toward the city and he gives his disciples this instruction. Verse 30. Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As they were going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully and with a a loud voice for all the miracles which he had seen, shouted, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed, or, or peace, in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew helps us uh, understand that the, the two disciples were to take this young colt and its mother, bring the two animals to Jesus, and Jesus sat on the colt. Now before he sat on the colt, some of the people in the crowd laid their coat on the colt. And Jesus sat on the coat. Others in the crowd laid their coats on the ground. And the animals walked over the coats. That's important for us to understand the the meaning behind this because it helps us see the, 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 the depth of expectation for these people. Let me take you back last week to my conclusion, I referred you to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says, uh, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He goes on and says, this, this is our reasonable worship, is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice before the Lord. Now, in talking about that, I explained that that, uh, the Apostle Paul used a figure of speech there. It's called a synecdoche, which is um, simply specifying a part, but referring to the whole. So when Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he is not simply or merely speaking of our physical being. He's saying, 
present your mind, present your emotions, present your will, present your possessions, present everything you are, everything you have to the Lord. That is reasonable worship. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we find a figure of speech. Here in, John, uh, in, uh, in Luke's gospel, we find a figure of action. The laying of the coats on the ground is the small for the big. The little part for the large part. To lay your coat on the ground was an act of submission, an act of obeisance, an act of worship, an act of, 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 of declaring you are the sovereign one. You are the king and I am your servant. So as these people walked uh, around in front of, uh, behind Jesus, they, they actively laid their coats in front of the animals, and Jesus, of course, on the, on, the, on the colt, and it was an act of submission as they went forward. They understood Jesus to be the king. Now, a donkey in, in uh, the first century world in that particular part of the world was a little different than the donkey you might have in your mind or you might have seen out in the fields. Um, those, those donkeys were much smaller, so much so that a man riding a donkey might have had to lift up his legs so his feet didn't drag on the ground. And this was... A juvenile, a colt, an untrained animal. So here Jesus was walking from Bethany toward Jerusalem. You had to go over the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives was some 300 feet above the city of Jerusalem itself. So here they overhear it in Bethany and as they are crowning the, uh, the Mount of Olives that's to the east of, Mount, of, of Jerusalem. The people are laying their coats in front of Jesus. Jesus is walking on them as he's riding the, the, the donkey, that is. And as they crown that hill, they are met with another group of people coming from Jerusalem who had heard he was in town, heard he was coming into the city. This is the first day of the feast. They have heard the temple choir singing. So here, from behind, there is a group of people coming with Jesus. And then as he crowns the, the uh, Mount of Olives, people from the city are coming up. And there is a mass of humanity gathering around Jesus. They're laying their coats in the ground. They are waving palm fronds. There is electricity in the air because the king has come to town. But there's something that just doesn't make sense. There's something incongruous with this picture. 
Because if Jesus was really the king, and he was really going to come to beat up the Romans and to free the Jews once and for all, they would have expected him to be riding a stallion, a war horse. But instead, Jesus is on a donkey. And he has to lift his legs up in order to ride the donkey. Something that didn't really quite fit in their mind. There were words of praise. There was words of prayer. Hosanna. Save thou, we beseech thee. There were palm fronds flying. Oh, this is the victorious, victorious one. There were coats laid on the ground. We submit to you. We will do what you say. And yet, he's riding a donkey? Well, there's some things that we, we need to take away from this. We know for sure that there is coming a time when Jesus will return for his second advent, and at that time he will be riding a war horse. He will be riding a stallion. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John writes of what he has seen what has been revealed to him, hence the name of the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are, are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will come amidst words of praise, words of prayer. Save thou, we beseech thee. And there will be palm fronds flying and there will be coats laying on the ground upon which he will tread. But not now. Not yet. That time is still in the future. It's not time for all of those expectations to be met. But the people didn't know that at the time. If you look back at our text, verse 16, John says, these things, that is, these things about Jesus' kingship, 
These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Later, it would all click. They would get it. They would understand. They would comprehend what was going on in the fullest sense. And their expectations would rise again. But for now, there was this incongruity between what they were doing and what they were saying, the praying and the praising, and the waving of the palm fronds, the laying of coats in the road. They didn't understand. Second page of your notes. Verse 17, point number three, keeping the dream alive. So the people who were with him, with Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. Incongruity aside, forget the fact that he's on a donkey and he should be on a horse. But we don't know why that happened. But they kept telling each other about what Jesus did to Lazarus. He was in the ground for four days. And Jesus just called his name and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. And all the crowd who were around him that saw it said, yeah, I was there too. I couldn't believe it. And the people from up north in Galilee said, and you know what I, I saw him do? And they would relate one miraculous deed after another. And they, they kept this dream of Jesus being the idyllic, perfect king right then, right there, in the face of the Romans. They kept that dream alive. He has to be the guy. He has to be the guy that does this kind of delivering right now. Verse 18. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, up to this point here in John chapter 12, it's the chief priests of the Sadducee sect that are prominent. They wanted Jesus dead and gone. Because he was upsetting um, their way of life. He was threatening the income that they enjoyed. They, he, he, was, he was a threat to the political security they had come to enjoy. But now we find the Pharisees are miffed, perturbed, and divided. There were some Pharisees that had a rather laissez-faire, 
keep your hands off, let's just wait and see how this thing pans out kind of attitude. Um, Gamaliel, you remember Acts chapter 5, ha- had the same kind of attitude. And we read his counsel to the Sanhedrin um, uh, just a few years after the fact. In, uh, in, in verse 38 of Acts chapter 5, he says, In the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men, speaking of the disciples who had been preaching about Jesus. Stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Well, maybe there was a group of Pharisees who had that kind of, of hands-off kind of policy. The others, the other group of, of Pharisees that were a little bit more aggressive and assertive said, you see that you are not doing any good. Your hands-off, let's-wait-and-see kind of attitude is doing us no good. Jesus is continuing to speak and to do amazing things. And you see how many people he is gathering around himself? I wonder if these Pharisees are in the temple area. You can see the Mount of Olives from the temple area very obvious to see it's high enough in elevation and there are there are a group of people that have come with jesus from bethany that are behind jesus and then there's that that group of people that are coming from the city and they're marching toward jesus jesus is in the middle of all of them and there is a mass of humanity around them The first century uh, historian Josephus said that in about 60, 64 A.D., somewhere in that, about 30 years after Jesus is is on earth, he he says that there were about 2.7 million Jews in the city in Jerusalem on that particular year when he was recording this um, that came for Passover. That's a lot of people. Let's say that 30 years previous, maybe maybe there weren't quite that many people. Maybe there were more. And maybe there was only a a, a fraction of those people that went out to see Jesus. But you can imagine an entire hill, an, an entire mountain filled with humanity clamoring to see Jesus They wanted to see Lazarus. They're waving their palm fronds. They're they're shouting, praying, Hosanna, save us. They're laying their coats in front of Jesus as he's marching down the hill toward Jerusalem. An act of submission and, and obeisance to him. And the Pharisees say, The whole world has gone after him. The whole world 
has gone after him. The Apostle John loves the word world. And when he talks about uh, the work of Christ, um, he uses this word world frequently to describe the expanse of God's work through the Christ. Let me just mention three verses that John wrote. First one in chapter 3. A familiar little verse that you might have stumbled across at some point. Verse 16 of John chapter 3. Let's, let's read it correctly. Uh, let's, let me read it incorrectly first. God so loved the world. That's not what the verse says. If we were to look at it from the Greek text and translate it into English, it would be more accurate to read it this way. God loved the world in this way, to this extent, that he sent his one and only Son into the world, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Another time that Jesus, or rather that John uses the word world, is, uh, is found in the next chapter, verse 42, where he is, where uh, some Samaritans say, he is indeed the Savior of the world. Glorious passage of scripture from John's first epistle, chapter 2, verse 2. John writes, he himself, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Amen. And amen. Now what Paul, or rather what John is not saying, is that Jesus loves and saves and propitiates, that is, satisfies the just demands of God. The whole world in the sense that everyone, without distinction, is loved and saved and propitiated in the same way. John is not saying that. If he was saying that, we would all be universalists. And we would be saying that there is no hell, there is heaven, and frankly, you're wasting your time here because everybody's going to get to heaven anyway. No, what Paul, I keep saying Paul, but I meant John. Um, what, what John is saying here, when he uses the word world, he is using it in an expansive way. Talking not about every person without exception, but he's talking about every person without distinction. John is a Jew, and the Jews thought they owned salvation. And John goes out of his way over and over again to say, no, God loves the world. God is the, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He propitiates the sins of the world. 
Every person without exception? No, 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 no. Not just Jews, but Gentiles also. The whole world. Back in our text, when, 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 when the Pharisees said, the whole world has gone after him, did, did they mean every single person? No. No, in, in, in this case, uh, it was uh, an, an exaggeration. They were, they were embellishing this uh, to, to a significant degree. This is, this is hyperbole. No, the world hadn't gone after him, not every single person, not even every single person in Jerusalem. What the Pharisees meant was that there is a mass of humanity that is following Jesus, and largely because he raised this guy named Lazarus from the dead. What they didn't intend was to speak prophetically. But the Holy Spirit uses this to tell us, yes, indeed, the whole world does, has, will go after Jesus. Every person without exception? No, no. No, we're talking about the breadth. We're talking about Jews and Gentiles. The whole world. People in the world find salvation only in Jesus. Acts chapter 4. The Apostle Peter said, uh, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which... Uh, given among men by which we must be saved. There is only salvation in Christ. That was the first Passover, or the first um, Palm Sunday during Passover. Um, let, let, me, let, me, uh, let, me, let me take some time to... Um, apply this text of Scripture to, um, to our life. Let's put some shoe leather on this thing. Let me go back to the questions I asked at the beginning. How, 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 how do you deal with dashed expectations? How would God have you respond when the things you expect explode in midair? There were a lot of Jews on that first Palm Sunday that had their expectation explode because they wanted, fully expected, that Jesus was going to be the delivering king and he was going to do it at that time. Yeah, the whole riding a donkey thing may not have made a whole lot of sense, but, 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 but to them, they could see nothing else but Jesus as their deliverer. It was in their history. It was in their scriptures. 
It was in the work of Jesus. But all that exploded when Jesus was arrested and then was on trial and then he was abused by the Romans mocked by the Jews and it became very apparent he's not going to get out of this alive and their king their deliverer their their savior from Rome was dead. What do you do when your expectations evaporate? Let me suggest three things. Know God, trust God, seek God. First, when faced with disappointments of various kinds and various degrees, know God. Know that God is the sovereign one. He is the one alone who is large and in charge. King David said, 1 Chronicles 29, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. The Apostle Paul said the same in his first epistle to Timothy. Chapter 6. Paul wrote, Our Lord Jesus Christ is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As the sovereign one, nothing escapes his omniscient eye nothing escapes his omnipotent hand not even the most difficult demanding horrible thing you have ever been through Solomon wrote in Proverbs 21 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. There is not one pugnacious potentate, one megalomaniac monarch that is outside of God's control. nor any of the bad things that might flood our personal space. Know that God is in charge of every disappointment and every exploding expectation in your world. 
Second, because of that, you can trust him. Know God, trust God. L- listen to how Moses um, ex- uh, uh, describes God in Deuteronomy 32. He describes him as the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. Further, Moses is the one who pens these words that the Lord himself gave to his servant. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. In our experience of disappointment, we have to remind ourselves of the character of God. It's the pages of Scripture that remind us there. And because of what we know from this word that has stood the test of time. We know he is worthy of our trust. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Yeah, we make choices, we make decisions, but it is God who is large and in charge. He directs our steps. And so, Proverbs chapter 3, we trust in the Lord with all our heart. We don't lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, we acknowledge Him. He makes our paths straight. Corey Ten Boom was a woman who was racked with expectations that exploded all around her at the end of her life she said this from generation to generation from small beginnings and little lessons he has a purpose for those who know him and trust him know god trust god Third, seek God. Hortenboom also wrote this. If you look at the world, you'll be depressed. If you look at yourself, you'll be distressed. If you look at Jesus, you'll be at rest. You know, we usually have no idea what God is doing when those expectations that we have explode. It may be that he is sparing us from temptation and sin. It may be that he is disciplining us, shaping us to be more like him. It may be 
that he explodes those things that we expect to happen because he has other things that he is doing in us, through us, around us, because of us, in spite of us, in the lives of other people. That one event that we expect that blows apart and maybe that reaction on our, our ha- behalf, God is using in hundreds of different ways in the lives of other people as they watch and listen and observe. Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. We have no idea what God is doing, usually. Corey Ten Boom and her sister were prisoners in Hitler's Ravensbrück concentration camp. Her sister died in that camp. She died from the brutal beatings at the hands of the Nazis. One guard in particular was responsible for the hellish treatment of Corey's sister. She could handle being treated badly herself, but she had a most difficult time with the abuser of her sister. A natural resentment built up in Corey's heart toward that particular German guard. After the war, Corey went back to war-torn Germany. She went to extend a word of forgiveness. She went to be a message of forgiveness. Guilt hung heavily on the German people. They entered and left the church where Corey spoke in silence. After the service, a number of people stood in line to greet her. The guard who beat her sister was in that line. He didn't recognize her to have been at Ravensbrook. But he said, I was a guard in a prison camp. I appreciated your message tonight. And I want to let you know that I have come to know Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. And I come because I need forgiveness. Corey had just spoken about forgiveness. But when she recognized him as the man who so cruelly abused and tortured her sister, bitterness and anger boiled within her. 
He stood there with his hand out. Corey could not raise her hand to take it. He repeated, making it personal. Corey, will you forgive me? In her soul, she cried out, Oh, God, help me. She suddenly felt a warmth come through her body, and before she realized what she was doing, she took his hand, looked him in the eye, and said, I forgive you. She trusted the Lord in that situation. Even when reality was so far removed from her expectations. And we can trust Him. Even when our reality is to simply be picked to clap and cheer. Let's pray. Our blessed, most caring, loving, merciful, beneficent God, You have done for us in Christ what we could never ask. You have saved us. You have redeemed us. You have satisfied the wrath of God. You have served justice at the court of heaven. enabling us to be free and to stand before the Almighty Father clothed in the garb of Christ's righteousness. These are truths that are so far beyond us. We cannot comprehend them grasp them, understand them. But from the pages of Scripture, we know that they are true. And for that, we give you thanks. May our life, in all of its particulars, reflect that which is fitting and appropriate. We pray in the name of the risen Christ.